Father, as we open your word today, our prayer is that the spirit of the Lord would guide and direct our hearts. Uh, Jesus, you reminded us that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. And I pray today that you will teach beyond my capacity to the hearts of every individual here and watching online and in Brown Chapel. Please bless the reading of your word and the preaching of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, before we get to the text today, let me give you a little bit of a backdrop of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, Corinth was a city in the ancient world that was uh, very well known. It was a megatropolis of sorts, and uh, she was known for her wealth and her extravagance and her debauchery, which is often the case in cities who were known by those distinct categories. And Paul visits there for about a year and a half. He spends, this is the, the second longest that he stays at anywhere else. He stays at Ephesus the longest. But then he stays at Corinth for about a year and a half and just trying to mature and, and grow this church. And so as Paul has gotten word long after he has left, um, Corinth is, is the church at Corinth. They're having some major dysfunction that's going on. Um, there are, not only is there debauchery and sexual sin, there, there are crazy things that are happening that are very much out of the norm. There's one situation where there is a son and he is having um, an affair with his father's wife, not his mother, but his stepmother. He's sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, there, there are all these different kind of issues that are going on morally. But even outside of what's going on morally, within the church services, it's almost as if the corruption outside of the church at Corinth has kind of infiltrated what's going on in the church. And so all of this stuff is going on. The church services are crazy out of order. Everybody's been given a spiritual gift, but some people are just super dominant in, in their moment. They're wanting the spotlight, and so other people are not getting the opportunity to serve and to minister. And so those who have lesser giftings are, are kind of looked down upon. Um, they're kind of looked at as almost as if they're less than. And so this body at Corinth is completely out of whack. It's out of sync. It's not operating the way that Paul left it. And so Paul writes his letter, and, and scholars, they would say that this is the severest letter that Paul ever writes. And Paul comes in almost like a chiropractor. You ever been to a chiropractor? Have you ever seen those videos of chiropractors where they're just cracking people's backs and you're like, oh, you know, you think they're going to die, but they don't, they survive. Paul steps in and he is just trying to just set the body back in order so it, that it can function the way that God has called it to function so that everybody will be orderly in what they do. And part of this teaching in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, what he wants to address is the spiritual giftings, how they should flow, how church services should operate, etc. And so today we're going to pick up here, um, we, uh, we're going to read the majority of chapter 12, but we're going to skip around a little bit. Um, I'm going to begin here in verse 1. The scripture says this, Paul writes, he says, Now brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. 
God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift, listen to this, is given to each of us so that we can help others. It is the one and only spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews and some Gentiles, some slaves and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? A rhetorical question, the answer is no. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen while the most honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put together the body such that extra honor and care is given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Amen. Uh, years ago, when Joy and I first started dating, we started dating in 1998, which seems like a lifetime ago. Um, we started dating around Christmas time, and so um, she invited me over to her family Christmas celebration. It was actually the day after Christmas, and so they all gathered at her nanny's house, and they would exchange gifts and this celebration and they would eat a meal because it was in the morning. Uh, we showed up and there was this huge breakfast spread. I mean, it was like the most Southern, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was fried eggs. Everything was fried, you know, fried eggs and fried bacon and grits and, you know, anything that you can think of as far as breakfast goes, it was, it was this full spread. And so I looked as I was looking at what part I'm going to devour first, I looked and I saw this bowl and the bowl was filled with this chocolate pudding type thing. I didn't really know what it was. I, I thought it was super bizarre. It was really out of place. I thought, who eats pudding with breakfast, right? It just seemed really strange. And I thought, well, maybe it's for the kids. And I looked around, there were no kids. And uh, I thought, well, that's weird. So I asked Joy, I said, what is, why are you guys eating? Are you going to eat that with your breakfast? And she said, oh, no, it's not pudding. She said, that is Nanny's cocoa. And I said, well, it looks weird. And she said, well, you can say that all you want until you try it. And I said, okay, I'll try anything once. I was still trying to win her affection, so I was definitely going to try it. So, 
she gets a plate and she gets me this biscuit and she smothers it with uh, butter and then she just takes this ladle of just filled with nanny's cocoa and she's just pouring it and it's drizzling all over and I'm thinking to myself it looks amazing I'm not sure how it's going to taste and uh, so she hands it to me and I take a bite and when I tell you I took a bite I want you to know that it's as if the heavens and the earth melted away <laughs> and the glory of the Lord shone down on me and the angels, they were singing all in harmony. It was a beautiful moment. My taste buds had never been so alive. It was incredible. And after I took a bite, I was like, what is this? And she said, it's Nanny's cocoa. I said, this is the best thing I've ever had in my life. And I just ate, I ate, I think that's all I ate. I didn't even eat bacon, eggs, and I, I skipped it all. I stuck with the cocoa and biscuits. It was absolutely amazing. And so from that point on, uh, probably once a week, we would go to Nanny's house and she would cook breakfast for dinner, you know, sometimes, and, and we'd have cocoa. I'd always, it'd always be my special request, cocoa. And um, it, was, it was amazing. Well, about a year and a half after that, maybe two years after that, Joy and I were married and we already had a baby and we, we moved away. We, we had been called to a church in Panama City a couple hours away. And one night I remember coming home from work and I said, babe, I am, I am so much in the mood for uh, breakfast for dinner tonight. She was like, oh, that sounds so good to me. I'll start the bacon and the eggs. And I was like, I'll start this. And I said, I said but I, I need you, even if you don't make the bacon, I need to make sure that you make the cocoa. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I don't know how to make cocoa. <laughs> what did you just say to me? <laughs> this was a part of our marriage vows. How do you not know? <laughs> you don't know how to make cocoa. And she said, that's Nanny's thing. That, that's Nanny's recipe. I said, then get her on the phone. Like, let's go. And I said, when you get her on the phone, don't just try to memorize it, write it down. When you write it down, we need to make copies, laminate those. I got a Swiss bank account. We're gonna send one there. We're gonna bury one in the backyard. We gotta make sure that we preserve this for the rest of our days. And so as the years went by, we didn't do any of that. And we ended up losing the recipe again. De exactly, devastated, so devastated. And, um, a few months ago, I was talking with uh, one of the ladies in our office, uh, Marlene, Miss Marlene. She is so lovely. And uh, she was telling me about a gift that she had gotten from her son-in-law, Brian, uh, for Christmas. And what it was, well, I'm not going to tell you what it was. it was. It was a really special gift. And as soon as she showed me the gift, I thought, that's exactly what I need to do. And so I called Joy's mom and I said, look, this is the last time I'm going to ask. I need you to get Nanny's cocoa recipe and I need you to send it to me. She said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll text it to you. I said, no, I need you to get it in writing on an index card and I need you to mail it to me. I need it in person. I need to be able, I need it tangible. I need to be able to hold it. And so she did that in Nanny's handwriting and all this stuff. And so I took the card and I took it to Brian and Brian has this machine and he does all this magical stuff. And long story short, Brian ended up making me this cutting board that has, uh, this is Nanny's handwriting and it says Coco. I'm not going to let you see it, what the recipe is, but um, it's in Nanny's handwriting and at the bottom it says Nadine Nanny Alexander. And uh, your boy's no fool. I got three of them made. And a house fire, 
hurricane could come. Who knows what could happen? So I got three of them made. I sent, for Mother's Day, I sent one to Nanny. I sent one to Joy's mom, and I kept this one for Joy um, <laughs> that we keep at, at our house. And uh, as, I've, as, I've, as I've thought about that, um, I have wondered from time, I, I've been haunted. Nanny's in her late 80s at this point. And the, the thought has haunted me. What if Nanny at some point would have gone to be with Jesus and taken the recipe with her? I mean, we would have missed Nanny. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We love Nanny. We love Nanny. But here's the thing. I'm going to see Nanny again one day, okay? I need the recipe. I need the goods for this life, okay? Haunted. What if we, what, that would be, what about my taste buds, my children, my kids' kids, on down the line. This is something that every generation of Henderson need to experience, okay? And I'm haunted by the thought, what if we would have lost this recipe? But thankfully, Nanny was willing to share. She was willing to share, why? Because that's what you do in a family. You share the good things that you have with those who are in the family, right? The reality is this, Paul's looking at these people in Corinth, they've all got these spiritual gifts, but they're all just completely misusing them. Some feel like they're not even justified to use them, all these kind of things. And Paul steps in and he says, no, 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 listen to me. Everything that you have been given is worthy to be shared. Everything that you've been given, it's as if God, when Christ came and died for our sins. He ascended into heaven. The spirit of God came. And those of us who trust on Christ, the Bible says that we are instantly imparted spiritual gifts from heaven. It's as if the spirit of God went to this treasure trove in heaven and he got certain jewels and, and gems and he came and he imparted some of those into every single one of us. And the reality is this, this is a hard reality is that when you look throughout Christian history, even modern day Christianity at churches all over the world, you will find Christians who are going to heaven. They're going to, they've trusted in Christ. They are going to heaven. But they have such special giftings within them that they will take to their grave, never sharing with anybody else. It's a reality, it's a hard reality, it's a harsh reality to deal with. And the, re the further reality is this, is that it's tragic. It's very tragic, not only for them, because they don't, they don't get to experience the pleasure of God as they share these giftings with others, but it's tragic for those of us that do not get to experience what they have to offer us. And I just wanna remind us for a few minutes today, I wanna remind us, that God is doing a fresh work in this earth. As we approach the end of days, and I'm telling you, we are approaching the end of days. As we approach this, God is going to begin doing newer and newer and newer works. And listen to me, as Paul said, all of you are a part of it. And God wants you and he wants me to be a part of what he's doing but oftentimes that requires us sharing what we've already been given. 
Last week, I talked to you for a little bit about the, the, the rights and the privileges as we are brought into the family of God as, as sons and daughters. We have certain rights and privileges that people outside of the family don't have. Today, I want to talk to you about the responsibilities that we as the sons and daughters of God have because we have been brought into the family. See, in my family and probably in your family, every, every layer of person in my family carries some level of responsibility simply because we're a family. I want my children to understand that you help and you serve and you share because you were a part of the family. Doesn't mean I'm gonna love you anymore, right? Easton is a phenomenal, he is the best trash out taker I've ever seen in my life. He's the best. He really is, he's faithful, he doesn't complain, he does it without being, I mean, he is just the best trash out taker I've ever seen in my life, okay? But I'm gonna tell you, just because he takes it out doesn't mean I love him more, right? It, it doesn't mean that if he doesn't take out the trash, it doesn't mean I love him less. It does mean that, you know, if he may get blessed every night. I may give him some ice cream if he's lucky, some rosé ice cream from time to time, you know. Um, but my point is this, it's the same thing that pastor has been teaching us for years. There's nothing I can do. There's no good thing. There's no responsibility I can carry. There's nothing I can do to cause God to love me anymore. And even if I neglect all that and don't do it, it's not gonna cause God to love me any less. However, we come to a point where there is a point of discussion where God has given us responsibility and part of that responsibility leads to a reward in the next life. And so today, as we begin to, to talk about what responsibility looks like as a son or a daughter of God, um, I want to remind us that this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Ancient Israel, they understood as the chosen race of God, they bore a responsibility that people outside of their race did not bear, right? And in a very general sense, there are two types of responsibilities. There's one, in a very general sense, Israel understood that they were, they were responsible for certain things. Like throughout all of the Old Testament, you're going to hear this talk about the Sabbath day. As a Jew, if you're a part of the spiritual family of God, if you're a Jew, there's just this general understanding that, that regardless of who you are, you're going to obey the Sabbath. You're going to keep it holy. You're not going to work. You're going to honor it. There are, there are scriptures all throughout the Old Testament. There were these expectations of the people, not necessarily a specific person, but just in general that said, look, if you're a part of the family, that means you're going to be responsible to do this, to honor the Sabbath, to walk with integrity, to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. So the writers would say, look, if you see somebody who's being maligned or bullied or mistreated or whatever, then you as a Jew, not because God has called you as an individual to do it, but because God has generally called his people to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. That's part of the responsibility of just being a part of the family, right? But even beyond that, from a very general level of responsibility, there were very specific levels of responsibility within the Jewish community. Take, for example, the Levite, the tribe of Levi. 
the Levites were the priests of ancient Israel. In the time of Moses, they were responsible for the construction of the tabernacle, the deconstruction of the tabernacle, and then they would move somewhere and reconstruct the tabernacle. And so it was only the Levites that were responsible for this. The other tribes of Israel did not bear this responsibility. It was specific responsibility given to the Levites. But even within the Levite tribe, certain people of the Levites were assigned certain responsibilities. So some dudes were responsible for, you know, wrapping the rope and making sure the rope for the tabernacle got where it needed to go. Others were responsible to, to get the poles collected and make sure that they carry the poles where they needed to go. Some of the Levites were responsible to make the fire for the burnt offering. Some were responsible to clean the utensils. Others were responsible, literally, there were, there were guards once the tabernacle was set up. They had to stand a post outside of the tabernacle, all the way around the tabernacle, to make sure that an Israelite didn't mistakenly just kind of stumble in to a holy place being unclean and God strike them dead. And so these, these Levites would, would surround and they would make a guard. These were very specific to the Levites and then personal for certain Levites depending on their responsibility. Am I making sense? There are general responsibilities that we have simply because we're in the family of God. But then there are specific responsibilities we have because of who God has called us to be and how he has equipped us. All throughout the church era, early Christianity on all the way through, general responsibilities were issued through the New Testament. And today I just wanna share a few with you. This isn't a comprehensive list by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but there were some things that the New Testament church, the writers understood under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they understood that if you're going to be adopted into the family, you don't earn your way and this is the free gift of God. But when you're brought into the family, now there are responsibilities that people just because they're a part of the family, these are things that they, that are expected of them. So generally speaking, and again, these, these responsibilities on some level apply to all of us today. For instance, number one, it's in your notes. The expectation that we contribute to the family of God through love and care. Jesus set us up like this. This is what he said. He told his disciples. He said, listen, by this one characteristic, all the people of the world, whether the Christians are lost, all the people of the world will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Jesus would model this as he would go to people who were um, outcasts in the world, lepers and prostitutes, people that religious people did not care for or care about, Christ would step in and care for them and have compassion for them. And his model spread all throughout Christian history. And there was this idea all throughout the world that, look, if you're a part of this family, that means you have a level of compassion and love for others that the world in general just does not have. And so when we look throughout church history, there, there are incredible examples uh, most of the hospitals that were built for the first like thousand years of the church, they were built under the name of Christ. 
It's because the church understood what it meant to care for people and to love people regardless of their condition. Uh, Tertullian, one of, the, one of the early church fathers, he would write about um, as, as people in his day, they, they may have children, um, give birth to a, a newborn child, and that child may have a birth defect or something that was off about the child, or maybe the parents just really did not want uh, that gender of a child. And so they would take that newborn infant and they would take them to the garbage heaps or to literally, there, there are accounts where people would take a newborn infant and they would take that child and put them in the dung heaps of their city. Christians would step up to the plate. They would become known throughout the ancient world as those who would notice when children were taken to these remote places and left to die. And the Christians would be the ones to go to these children and if the child had already died, they would give them a proper burial. And if the child had not yet died, many of the Christians would take that child and raise them as their own. That doesn't seem like a very normal thing to do. But when you're a part of the family of God, there's a level of compassion and love and tenderness that exudes from you. There's not an effort to do it. It just is manifest through you because the spirit of God lives in you. And so there's, there's compassion, there's care, there's love. But number two, generally speaking, we contribute to the family of God through fellowship. This was an expectation. It was, it was modeled in the book of Acts, right? In Acts 2, you see uh, the church coming together periodically from time to time for worship, for teaching, for fellowship, for prayer, for sharing things. They periodically, it was modeled for us in the book of Acts. But then in Hebrews, it's commanded of us. And here's the thing, dude, we live in the year 2021, Nobody likes to be commanded to do anything. I'm telling you, I'm even nervous with my Christian brothers and sisters. It makes me nervous to tell you that something's commanded of you. It makes me nervous because I understand the society that we live in and nobody needs to be telling me what I should or should not do. And I agree with that to a degree, but there's not an argument when it comes to what he is commanding us to do. And so the writer of Hebrews, he writes and he says this. He says, listen, don't stop fellowshipping with one another. Don't stop, or excuse me, don't stop gathering together and meeting for worship and fellowshipping. And this is what he says, as many people are in the habit of doing. He specifically says, look, there's a habit. Like there's this, this, this thing, this, this trend that's going on among Christians where they just stop gathering together. They think they've got this on their own when the body of Christ was instituted and given by the Lord Jesus himself so that we could be a part of what he's doing. Let me just say this. I understand that we're in a, we're in a very unique time right now in this world. I understand that, that there are many people because of their health situation, because of fear, work, all, I mean, there are a plethora of legitimate reasons that people can't be here with us this Sunday morning. This is why we have made you know, room for live stream and a venue for Brown Chapel is because we understand that we're living in very unique, peculiar days. 
but we wanna give the family of God an opportunity to be a part of the fellowship, to be a part of what God is doing in this day. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Okay, please don't misunderstand. It's one thing when I have a legitimate situation and I can't be around the people of God for reasons X, Y, or Z. It's another thing when I've just made a habit of not being around the people of God because I wanna do what I wanna do. Very different things here. As the family of God, part of our general contribution is coming together for worship and love and encouragement one for another. I'm gonna tell you this, uh, this last week, um, we were in Orlando for general council and uh, it was a phenomenal week. The kids, like Pastor Justin said, were amazing. They were just so incredible, so proud to see them. And um, my daughter, my oldest daughter, she is one of the coaches for one of the fine arts teams. And so uh, we went on one of the days and watched their performances and stuff. But on Wednesday, my family had decided that we were going to take um, our kids to Disney World, to Magic Kingdom. And, um, you know, one of them had never been, well, none of them had ever been to Magic Kingdom. Some of them had been to Anaheim, California, that Disneyland, but it's just not the same. And so we decided that we were going to take our kids. And we got photos in front of the castle. We didn't see any of the characters because COVID, you know, all this. And so, we, but, but we, we had a phenomenal day. We were there for like 14 hours, right? I'm still so tired because of that day. I've had like a week to recover. I'm still not better, okay? We had a phenomenal day. But I'm going to tell you, there were probably four or five times throughout the day where deep within my soul, I said to myself, I wish Autumn were here. I wish Autumn was here. You know, we got a, like I said, we got a, a selfie outside of the castle, but somebody's missing, right? And somebody said, oh, you can just Photoshop her in. Yeah, I guess, I guess we could, you know, and nobody else would ever know. But the thing is, is that I knew. And it made a difference that she was not there. Like it, it wasn't the same because she was not there. And I want you to understand as the family of God, and I know in a church this size, it can be sometimes if you're, if you're good at it, you can slip in after service starts and slip out before service ends. And, you know, you can go undetected. And I know that sometimes it can, it can feel like, man, the church is so big. Does anybody even see me? All this. Can I just tell you this? And, and this is from, from a pastor's heart, but also from a brother's heart. It makes a difference when you're here and when you're not here. It makes a huge difference. For this reason, not only is the potential there for you to miss what God wants to do through, not necessarily through the preaching of the word, you can find that online, but, but, but person to person, brother to brother, the, 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 the sisters ministering to the sisters, the body ministering to the body. And furthermore, it makes a difference because you have something to contribute here. You do. You have something to contribute in this moment. And so Paul, all the writers of the New Testament, they understood this. And they said, generally speaking, if you're going to be a part of the family, you need to come together. Like we need to be together and we didn't do this because it makes a difference whether we join together or not. Number three, there was a general understanding that to contribute to the family of God, it means that you are going to be giving generously to the family of God. My, uh, my daughter, Ella, is five. My daughter, Emery, is four. A couple of months ago, Ella lost her first tooth. 
So we took it like good parents and told her about the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Tooth fairy. I was about to call it a fairy queen. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> tooth fairy. Put the pillow, uh, put the tooth under the pillow after she fell asleep. And then magically, $2 appeared. Some, you know what some people were telling me? They were like, you know, the tooth fairy at our house brings $20 per tooth. I was like, you're living at another level. You know, like I'm not living at that level. So our tooth fairy brings two bucks, okay, on a good day. She wakes up the next morning. She looks under. She said, I got $2. I got $2. Emery was excited, but you could also see the sadness in her. And Emery, she was like, well, I, I want the tooth fairy to visit me. I said, baby, it'll happen in time. And I start talking to Ella, and I look over at Emery, and Emery's doing this. I said, baby, what are you doing? She said, I love money. She's trying to pull her teeth out. I said, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not how it works. I'm going to tell you what, churches, churches should not be like, they should not be like that. They should not be churches who, I love money, let me do whatever I can to get you to give money. It's not the way it was set up to be. On the flip side of that, there is a general understanding taught by all the Old Testament saints, by Jesus himself, by Paul, that if you're a part of the family of God, the general responsibility of you is that you're going to contribute to the work of God as a member of the family. That's, that's just what it is, okay? Again, these are hard truths, but this is an expectation of all because they're a part of the family of God. Again, you're, you need, if, if you've got problems with this, make sure you email me, glenn at clcolumbia.com. Be glad to read everything that you got. It, it's just an understanding. Number four is this, we contribute to the family through prayer. Paul says to Timothy, I urge you first of all to pray for all people, ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority, which includes spiritual authority. So Paul is saying this. He's saying, listen, if you're a part of the family, it means you're going to pray for the family. You're going to pray for the win and the success and the furthering of the kingdom. It's part of the expectation of New Testament. So as we look and consider all these things, let me just simply say this. I've been a part of this church for 10 years. Many other pastors have been here for much, much longer, twice as long as I have. But let me tell you from my perspective... Our church as a whole is exceptional on every metric that I just talked about. We, we surpass so, so much more than what we should be. We exceed all of it. It makes me want to do a little dance, make a little noise. You know what I'm saying? It is an incredible thing to be a part of such a healthy, vibrant family. So as a whole, we are exceptional. But as individuals, we need to look internally to see where am I measuring up? Again, we don't like to be measured against things. And I'm not asking you to measure against anything, but this book right here to make sure that, man, being a part of the family, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying the weight that the New Testament writers asked the weight that I carry. Now, I'm going to skip a whole lot because... Time is really of the essence right now, and I want, I want to make sure I, I hone in on something. 
But let me, let me just simply say this. We're talking about the general responsibilities if you're a part of the family of God. But understand that there are also specific responsibilities for those who are in the family of God. The text we just read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul writes this. He says, a spiritual gift is given to each of you so that we can help each other. Now, there's a lot of debate about what is a spiritual gift and what is a natural gift. And I'm not here to really split hairs about all of that, but I just simply want to say this, that if you will surrender the natural gift that God has given you, he can anoint that just as much as he can anoint a spiritual gift. One of the most incredible examples we see of this is as Moses is preparing to build the tabernacle, he receives instruction from the Lord and listen to what the Lord says to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every good craft. In this moment, what you're seeing is a man who is just naturally gifted in, in, the, in the arts and in developing and crafting and molding and creating things. And God says, I'm going to take this man and I put the spirit of God on him. I have anointed him for this task to be able to help you erect the tabernacle so that my name can go forth and be renowned. So God has taken the natural gift and he has anointed it in the same way that he can take a spiritual gift and anoint it. In your notes, I put four different sections of spiritual gifts that we have all throughout scripture. For the sake of time, we cannot even you know, go through all of that. But I will tell you this, back last year, sometime in the spring of last year, I think it was, I did a Wednesday night teaching where we really dug into all of these spiritual gifts. You can find that on YouTube if you want. But my point is this, is that although God can anoint natural gifts in the same way he can anoint spiritual gifts, it's important for us to understand that people who are not inside the family of God, they do not possess spiritual gifts. It is reserved for the Christian. It is reserved, listen, again, the spirit of God has distributed his gifts to those who belong to the Lord. And so we have a different level of gifting that people outside of Christ do not possess. And some of those are definitely more spiritual, if you will. They apply in the spirit realm more than they do in the natural realm. And some apply in the natural realm. But the point is, is that there are spiritual gifts that God has given us. My point today is simply this. I'm not here to debate what is a natural gift and what is a spiritual gift. I do not think the Bible was trying to be exhaustive when it, was taught, when it lists all these spiritual gifts. Uh, there are a lot of reasons I don't think that the Bible was being exhaustive. But let me say this. I'm not here to debate those kind of things. What I'm here to do is to simply ask the question whether it be a spiritual gift or a natural gift, 
a combination of the two. Are you sharing what God has imparted to you? I'm not just talking about inside the body of Christ. I'm not just talking about within the church. I'm definitely talking about in the church, but I'm not just talking about in the church. I mean, outside in the world, Jesus said, look, he said, do good works. Let your light shine before all men. And when they see your good works, it'll glorify the father that's in heaven. He's saying, look, these things that God has gifted you with, do these good things so that people will be drawn to the glory of the son of God. Do these things. So I'm, I'm asking the things that have been imparted to you, specifically to you as an individual, are they being shared? And listen to me, this isn't about, I know this can feel kind of harsh to some degree, but listen to me, that's the furthest thing from my mind. This has nothing to do with making, I'm a shepherd. The, the last thing I want to do is make anybody feel bad. But my heart today is to say, this is not about condemnation. If the spirit convicts, then let the spirit do its work, right? But this is about fulfillment. This is about as David, the Bible says in Acts 13, David fulfilled the purposes of God in his generation. This is asking the question, are we fulfilling the purposes of God in our generation? And is Corey fulfilling the purposes of God in his generation by utilizing all that God has given me to do? Am I helping others? Am I trying to strengthen the church? Am I trying to further the kingdom? Or am I so caught up in what's going on in the world so distracted that I've lost sight of the responsibility that I bear for his namesake. That went over super well, super well. So today, this is all I want to do in, in the last few minutes that we have. I want to give you six really practical things that you can do. If you say, you know what, I, I, I need to hear this. I, I need this challenge. I need to hear this. I don't want to just leave you with the challenge. I want to give you some tracks to run on, okay? Number one is simply this. You need to figure out a way to discover the gift of God that's within you. If you have believed on Christ, God has given you by his spirit a spiritual gift, at least one, the Bible says, at least one. If not in, in, in this church, I believe most people carry more than one spiritual gift. My question is, do you know what that spiritual gift is? So I would encourage you to discover your gifts. Ask the Lord, ask those in your life that are spiritually mature, who know you, ask them what they think your spiritual gifting may be, Read books about spiritual gifts, watch seminars about spiritual gifts, but press in and really try to discover what your spiritual gift is because you can't share your spiritual gift if you don't know your spiritual gift. And so it's important that number one, we discover your spiritual gift. Number two, and this is, we're gonna run through this really quickly, but number two is simply this, appreciate the gift or the gifts that God has given you. I know this can seem so like a duh moment, but let me say that the people in Corinth didn't understand this. They were not using their gift for the glory of God as much as many of them were using it for the glory of themselves. 
And I want to tell you this, regardless of what your spiritual gift looks like, in, your, in so many people's mind, if they can't do it behind a microphone, then it's not one of the big gifts. If they can't sing, or if they can't play, or if they can't preach, or if they can't teach. But let me help you, let me just remind all of us that lesser on earth is not lesser in heaven. Paul said, listen, Paul said, some of the disregarded gifts are the most necessary. And sometimes those that we think are the most necessary really aren't. And so learn to appreciate the gift that God has given you. Don't, don't disregard it and say it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a treasure given from heaven. Don't be like the 10 lepers. You know, Jesus goes and he, he imparts a gift of healing to them. He says, I healed you. I give it to you. And the Bible says out of the 10, nine never show their experience express their appreciation to the Lord. Only one comes back to express gratitude and worship to the Lord. Don't be like the nine. Be like the one. Give thanks in all things, as Paul would say. So appreciate the gift. Number three, once you've learned to appreciate it, embrace the, the gift. For years, for years, I shied away people would compliment me about a particular spiritual gift I believe I have, and I would shy away from it for years. And I would say, well, I appreciate that, but they're just being kind, da, 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 all this kind of things. And I remember the Lord convicted me one day in prayer because I was kind of taking what he had given me and I was making it less than what it should be. And I learned that day that I need to embrace this. And when people ask me what my spiritual gift is, I need to be proud in the sense that I'm thankful that God gave me this gift and I embrace this gift for all that it's worth. And when I embraced the gift, I started using the gift at a different level. I'm gonna tell you, um, there are, there are, uh, a lot of us that don't know what our spiritual gift is. And again, I think it's important to do the work to discover. The trouble is, is that sometimes it takes months or years to discover what God has imparted into your soul. And I would just simply say this, if you're struggling to discern what your gift is, before you can start using that gift, just jump in somewhere and serve. Just jump in and do something. Listen, uh, I, I was doing, anyway, I came across some numbers this last week. Do you realize that on Sunday mornings, we have a rotation of almost 200 people volunteering just for one Sunday morning service. 200 people to pull off a Sunday morning service. Listen to me, baby, there's plenty of work to be done. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, I can plug you in, okay? I'm just saying that, that if, if you're just unsure, sometimes you just gotta jump in the river and go downstream and see what happens. Right, And oftentimes in the midst of our serving, God will reveal to us what he has imparted to us. And furthermore, let me just say this to every person that is serving. Thank you, thank you, thank you a thousand million times over for helping this church function in the way that it has. And I would just encourage you in a season like this to not grow weary in doing good. Endure, endure, endure. Now, I realize I don't want to say that. I do want to say it. When it comes to most of us, and I'm speaking for myself, 
when it comes to most of us, there are generally three reasons that we give as to why we are not utilizing our spiritual gifts or you know, contributing as part of the family. There, there are generally three reasons. The first one is I'm too young, right? And these are three different phases of life. I'm, I'm too young, right? I can't you know, measure up to this or I don't have the experience, all this. So I'm too young. The second one is I'm too busy. Right, when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, it's I'm too busy. The third one, once you get into your 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, is I'm too old. Right? So if you're really good at it and you're really strategic, you've got, for the rest of your life, you've got a reason why you can't. You've always got a reason why you can't. Right? And listen to me. I, I understand. There, listen, I, I'm, I'm 40 right now. I am, uh, I, you know, we're having babies left and right. Um, work full time at a church. I'm in a doctoral program right now. There, there's a, I got friendships I got to keep up with. There's a lot going on in my life. Every one of my kids got their own schedule I got to keep up with. You know, uh, there is a lot going on in life. And I'll tell you this, for me, there have definitely been seasons where I need to step away from what I'm doing. There are definitely seasons where I need to take care of me. I need to take care of my family. I need to do this. There are seasons, and I'm not minimizing that by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just simply saying that if we really want to, we can always find a reason why we can't or why we shouldn't. And what I love so much about Scripture is that so tenderly and so gently, the Bible kind of dismantles all of our excuses. Paul goes to Timothy and he says, listen, he says, don't let anybody look down on you and despise your youth. You do the work, right? And, and furthermore, because you're young, you go above and beyond and you prove to them that you're not too young to do the work. For those that are too busy, Paul makes it clear in Ephesians that we need to use wisdom with our time. Be wise in the use of your time. And number three, I'm so thankful in scripture, we have examples like Abraham, who he and his wife in their 90s and 100 years, God is using them in one of the most powerful ways known to man, which kind of dismisses the I'm too old kind of thing. So I would just simply say this, if you're not dead, you're not done, okay? And there are seasons that are necessary for us to step away from, from, you know, sharing the gifts that God has given. There are definitely seasons. I am not dismissing that. But there are then seasons where we jump back in and we continue to further the kingdom with the special gift that God has given us. So just learn to use the gifts. Number five, develop your gifts. Um, I'll tell you this. Um, I told pastor one time, uh, pastor asked me to preach uh, a couple of different times. I think this was last year or something. And, and I just told pastor, I said, pastor, we've got so many preaching pastors on the staff. They are so incredible. I said, but I'm telling you this, if you ever ask me, I'm not going to say no. Okay. Like I'm, I'm it, it, so in other words, pastor, if you, if you want somebody else to preach, ask them to preach first and then come ask me because I'm telling you, I'm going to say yes every single time. And it's not because I think I'm extraordinary or anything like that. On the contrary, I know I need work. And the only way I get better at preaching is by preaching. The only way that I get better at writing is through 
writing. The only way that I get better at serving is through serving. And so I'm going to develop my gift by exercising my gift and doing that. And then finally, number six, and then we're going to close. Number six is simply this. Paul, at the very end of this letter where he's talking about spiritual gifts, he says this. He said, and furthermore, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, we don't exactly know what he means by higher gifts, okay? It can be argued uh, a number of different ways. But I think what Paul is trying to get at is he's saying, listen, if, if, there is, if, you, if there is a gift that you really love and you love seeing that gift in operation, but you don't feel like you have that gift, ask God to give you that gift if it's within his will. Pursue earnestly that gift and see what the Lord may do. But don't just settle for what you've been given. Now, use what you've been given. But Paul encourages us, listen, let's not just settle for what we've been given, but let's move further. And as we grow, as I grow, we grow, as we grow, the church grows, as the church grows, the kingdom of God grows. And we're able to do more together than we ever were able to do individually. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me real quick, and I'm going to, I'm going to close. Um, our altar team is going to come, and they're going to be at the front. Um, if you are watching online or any other venue, please, if you have any needs you want prayer for, please call the number that's on the screen. We have people that are waiting to pray with you. If you have any need, you can come. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I need God to help me. Allow these people to pray for you. Listen to me. Some of these people, their spiritual gift is prayer. Let them use their gift on you. Let them share their gift on you. But I'm going to say this. Actually, let me, let me ask you this. Can we show that photo Do you remember this? Remember this? This is from Rocky II, okay? And what should have instantly happened is music should have started in your mind as soon as I showed that. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. Rocky is obviously the central figure in what's going on, not just in the scene, but in the entire movie, right? But do you see that mob of children behind him. It's more than 800 children that followed him. And you know, the way it was set up, it was only originally set up for a few dozen kids to kind of see Rocky running and to kind of run behind him. But what ended up happening is that kids that weren't even supposed to be in the movie just started jumping in. Oh, Rocky, you know, the greatest athlete of our generation, right? just started running and, and all these, and I've watched the scene, and I know this sounds cheesy, but, but I'll like not watch the whole movie, and sometimes I'll just watch the scene. It's so inspirational. I'm like, you can do it, man, you know? <laughs> but then I've imagined what this scene would have looked like if it was just Rocky. I mean, it still would have been cool, right? But it wouldn't have been what it was without the kids. It would not have been as iconic as it has become in American culture 
if it weren't not just for Rocky, but everybody who follows Rocky. And I'm going to tell you not to make this sound super elementary, but I just want to say that our church at Christian Life, it will not look the way that it's supposed to look without you. The kingdom of God in this earth will not look the way that God has called it to look without you and without me doing our part, playing our role, jumping in behind the king to follow him wherever he goes. It's not going to be the same without us as individuals doing our part, playing our role. And with God's help, we will do it. Amen. Father, we love you this morning. God, I want to give thanks to the Lord because you could have done all of this without any of us. You could have done it all without any of us. But in your generosity, in your compassion, you let us come alongside and be a part of something you're doing in this era. And perhaps one of the most crucial times of all of human history, you have called us to live for such a time as this. But Father, my prayer is that we won't just live for such a time as this, that we will do for such a time as this, that we'll be a part of what you're doing in this earth for such a time as this. I thank you for a church family that exceeds every metric. I thank you for the health and the vitality of your people that are here in this house and those watching online. And I just wanna bless them in the name of the Lord. Please help us, Lord, to do all that we can as we further your kingdom in these last days in Jesus' name, amen.